Good morning. Hope everyone's doing well. Um, we are going to be in the book of Matthew this morning, and we are actually going to be starting in Matthew chapter 1. So if you want to get your Bibles out and open up to Matthew chapter 1, we are going to loosely work our way through chapters 1 through 4 and the first two verses of chapter 5. But before we jump into the text, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I started asking myself what death is, but really the end of whatever it is that is in front of us. Maybe it's a concluding note transitioning us to the next song on an album, the period at the end of our favorite book, a signal that whatever was is over. And speaking of death, at least in the Christian tradition, we speak of it with a hope that does not, that death does not have the last word, that death truly is a transition that leads us into something new. This morning, as Eric said, we are beginning a new series entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. We will be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and in so doing, we will see that the words of Christ delivered to us through Matthew present us with just that, a call to die, to lay aside our rights for the sake of others, a call to put off what was and to put on something new. I want us to keep that in our heads this morning as we travel through. It's a call to put off what was and to put on something new. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over the Sermon on the Mount throughout the course of the last 2,000 years. St. Augustine says anyone who piously and earnestly ponders the Sermon on the Mount will find therein the perfect standard of the Christian life. Mary Church Terrell, an African-American civil rights activist during the early 1900s, said about the sermon, some people cannot bear the truth, no doubt, the haughty, the tyrannical, the unmerciful, the impure, the instigators of discord take a fierce exception to the Sermon on the Mount. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says again, humanly speaking, we could understand and interpret the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. Jesus knows only one possibility, simply surrender and obedience. Not interpreting it or applying it, but doing and obeying it. When asked how to solve problems between Great Britain and India, Mahatma Gandhi said, when your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in this Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems not only of our countries, but those of the whole world. And finally, one quote that really stuck out as I've been studying um, comes from Christian theologian and ethicist Stanley Harawas. He says, whenever a people are bound together in loyalty to a story that includes something as strange as the Sermon on the Mount, we are put at odds with the world. And I want to read that one one more time. And we actually have a slide, I think, of that particular quote. It says, whenever a people are bound together in loyalty to a story that includes something as strange as the Sermon on the Mount, we are put at odds with the world. We are put at odds with the world, he says. 
And I started asking this question, how in the world are we put at odds with the world? And to understand this, we need to zoom out a bit and wrestle with the broader context of the Gospel of Matthew. And that context deals primarily with what Matthew refers to as the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. And beginning in Matthew chapter 1, it starts like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is presented right from the get-go as the culmination of this story. As we read through the rest of that genealogy, we see that Jesus is in the line of Abraham. He's in the line of David, the king that we talked about throughout the summer as we traveled through the Psalter and we looked at the story of David as being the story of Israel, which ends up being the story of Jesus, which we then adopt as our story as followers of Jesus when we believe and we're brought into union with him. Jesus is placed at the center of that story. Actually, better yet, he's placed at the fulfillment of that particular story. There's more, though. As the text goes on in Matthew, we see that there's a birth that takes place of Jesus. And something happens, right? Drawing upon Old Testament themes, Matthew starts to tell the story of Jesus. And when he's born, there are wise men that go to see King Herod. And they ask about this child. And and Herod is, is concerned because he hears of another king living in his midst. So what does he do? He orders the slaughter of all the male-born children, which should start reminding us of another story from the book of Exodus when Pharaoh slaughtered all the children. Furthermore, we see that Jesus and his family, Joseph and Mary, are ordered to head into Egypt to seek refuge from King Herod. Again, we're reminded that there was another people that went to Egypt to seek refuge because there was a famine in the land and Israel goes into Egypt to seek refuge. And then later on in the story, as Jesus grows up and he comes out of Egypt, he's baptized. He's baptized and he goes through the waters and then for 40 days he is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Again, there was another people who came through water in the Exodus story and who was tempted not for 40 days but for 40 years. Jesus is reliving the story of Israel right before our eyes. So what is Matthew doing here? He's presenting the fulfillment, one, of the monarchy established through David. He's also presenting the faithful Israelite who serves God rather than comfort, power, and prestige. And finally, as we'll see in a few moments, he's presenting Jesus as the new and better Moses who establishes a new covenant whereby the kingdom of heaven is unleashed into the world And what we need to pay attention to is the means by which God is doing just that. How is he unleashing this kingdom into the world? And we need to remember that Matthew is writing to the church, right? This is after the fact. So it's the people of God that are reading this story of Jesus. And they're reading this new law that was given to them in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's them who are now given the responsibility as the baton is passed from King Jesus to the people of God to do just that, to unleash the kingdom of God into this world. 
all while that's happening, all while this beautiful kingdom story is unfolding before our eyes, there's another story happening side by side. There's another king and kingdom present. In chapter two, the wise men visit who? Herod the king. During the temptation, Satan offers Jesus what? The kingdoms of this world. And upon leaving the wilderness, in chapter 4, Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, which was recalling the people of Israel before they were sent into Babylonian exile, on the brink of being sent into exile. And it says this in chapter 4, verses 15 and following. It says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. So in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of what was about to be this clash of kingdoms between Babylon and Israel, what we have is a light dawning in the midst of the darkness. And what we have as we look at the person and work of Jesus, as Israel is under Roman rule, under foreign kings, we have the dawning of a light in the midst of darkness. And that's what Matthew wants us to see. As this clash of kingdoms comes together, we're going to see as the story unfolds, chaos. I want to give you an illustration that Tim Mackey from the Bible Project put forth. He, was, he, he talked about this idea, and I'm just going to make it mine. So it's Tim Mackey, but I'm going to make it mine. So imagine next week we all picked up Redeemer Fellowship here in Tom's River, and we moved to London. We moved to England. And we started Redeemer Fellowship London. And on our first Sunday together, we begin discussing how we can establish our way of life as Americans in the United Kingdom. Because that's what you do, Right? The first thing we decide to do as a congregation is to begin driving on the right side of the road. That's our move. We want to establish the right way of living. So we decide, as an entire community, that we are going to, from that day forward, drive on the right side of the road. So we pull out of our church building, because we have this beautiful building in downtown London. I don't even know if there's a downtown London, because I've never been there. But it's there for this analogy and illustration. And as our 50 or so cars leave the parking lot, we collectively make that choice to drive on the right side of the road in the middle of London. And what happens as a result? Chaos ensues. Collision after collision. Car crashes all over the place. It becomes an absolute mess. And the point is that what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is an ethic, is a moral vision from another world entering into our world and what we are experiencing or what we ought to be experiencing is exactly what Stanley Harawas was talking about when he said that this message of the Sermon on the Mount will put us at odds with the world. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at as he prepares to deliver this sermon, this kingdom manifesto, if you will. In chapter 4, verse 17, it says this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And what Jesus is calling his people to do is to change course, is to go in the other direction, is to adopt a means of driving on the road that is now on the right side instead of the left side. And as a result, we are going to see that chaos will ensue. So he says it, right? He says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of God. So change your mind, change your direction, change the very thing that you've been doing for your entire life, and now do this other thing, which is actually in direct contradiction to the very thing that you thought was the right way to live. Do the opposite. There's a Seinfeld episode, for any Seinfeld fans in here, where, where George decides that he's going to do the opposite of everything he ever thought would be the right thing to do. And as a result, George has a great year. right? But then, eventually, it all goes to um, exactly. Anyway, so, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, what do we mean by that? What do we mean when it says the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, in other words, the promised reign and rule of God that was proclaimed throughout the Old Testament is dawning. And this now or never opportunity, I say now or never on purpose, this now or never opportunity is now dawning on the people of God. And his call to repent is a call to leave behind the wisdom of this present evil age and to adopt the seemingly backwards wisdom of the kingdom of God. And what we need to kind of wrap our minds around when we think of this term repent, it's actually a form of death. We said that when Christ calls a man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he bids a man come and die. And that's precisely what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, die to every single thing that you believed was the right way to live your life and live to this new law, this new piece of wisdom that I give you called the Sermon on the Mount, called my law. Repentance as a category of death is something that we have to wrap our minds around. And even us as followers of Jesus in this room, those of us who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and King over the universe, there are many things in our lives which we have decided to not repent of, to still live in light of the old story when the new story is permeating our lives. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says repent. Die to that old story and live to this new story of God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The text goes on, verse 18. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the, and the, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here, Matthew gives us an example of what Jesus was preaching. And he gives us a few people who actually decide, I'm going to do the thing that Jesus is calling us to do. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is his hand. These people hear it, and what do they do? They die to their old way of life. They decide that they were not going to pursue the things that they were initially going to pursue. They were not going to take up the family business, but rather they were going, going to go in a different direction. 
They were going to go in a different direction, and it cost them. It cost them. And that's the key element here when we think of what it means to be followers of Jesus. Because many of us, myself included, we want so badly to be seated, right, as Ephesians tells us, in the heavenly places with Jesus. We love that stuff. We love that Revelation 20, which we're going to look at in a little bit, talks about how we will reign with Christ. We love the the idea that we are going to be glorified. But I tell you that what the Sermon on the Mount is presenting and what Jesus is presenting throughout his entire ministry is that if we are to reign with Christ, then it is required that we reign like Christ. Right? If we're going to, I'm going to say that again, if we are to reign with Christ, It's required that we reign like Christ. And that's what we see happening even in this little tiny narrative of Peter and James and John coming to Jesus and following him. They're leaving behind everything that was giving them security, comfort, and all the things that you would want in this life. And they're saying, I'm going to follow you. And they're actually embodying the very thing that Jesus did when he stepped into this world and laid aside his glory for a time so that he might serve his creation. They're doing the very thing. The text goes on. Verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Which I can't help but imagine that his proclaiming of the gospel of the kingdom is exactly what he says in verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. All this is happening right before we get to the Sermon on the Mount. It's all building up to that. And what does he do? He first calls a people. And then he delivers those people. Look at what's happening in that entire passage from verses 23 through 25. Look at the things he does. He's healing people uh, who were paralyzed, right? Epileptics. These are lifelong ailments that people would have had. And what does he do? He delivers them from it. He removes it from them. Again, I can't help but think of the Exodus narrative as they too were redeemed and delivered from what would have been a lifelong enslavement under Pharaoh. These people are enslaved to their diseases and God is healing them. Jesus is healing them. And in so doing, what is he doing? He is manifesting the rule and reign of God right in their midst. Right in their midst. And that's what we're talking about when we're looking at what it means to be members of this kingdom of heaven, partakers of this kingdom of heaven. We are a redeemed and rescued people. And this is the grace of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the grace of the Sermon on the Mount. Dale Allison, New Testament scholar, says it like this. He says, before Jesus makes any demands, before Jesus makes any demands, he shows compassion by healing the sick among the crowds. The implicit lesson is that grace comes before demand. Today's command presupposes yesterday's gift. Today's command 
presupposes yesterday's gift. And that's what we see coming together here. Another element of the kingdom that we see that, is, that, that you might miss if you're not reading carefully, he says in verse 25, if you look down with me, he says, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, meaning that this was not just Israelites that were following him, but rather the nations were coming together. This is the Old Testament promise that Israel would be a light to the nations. And what is happening as as Jesus' ministry is dawning, is that the dividing wall of hostility that we speak about in Ephesians chapter 2 is already starting to crack. It's already starting to crack. As, as, little, as little bits and pieces of that promise is starting to drip into the world right before Jesus' eyes. And then we get to the sermon. We get to the sermon And in chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Matthew is a phenomenal storyteller. Like a phenomenal storyteller. It's weird, right? You see how excited I'm getting over this sentence right here. Like it's a strange thing to get excited over. But I'm really, like I'm busting right now because what's actually happening, what's behind the curtain is that what Matthew is doing is that he is lifting the exact words from Exodus where Moses goes up to the mountain. What we have happening here right before our eyes is that Jesus is being presented as the new and better Moses. Because what happened when Moses went up to the mountain? He received from God a what? A law. And he came back down and what did he do? He delivered it to the people. First, they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Then they passed through the waters and they got to the mountain and Moses ascended the mountain. And what we have here is an exact retelling of that story as Jesus embodies the entire narrative of Israelite history. Right here, Jesus, the new and better Moses, the the place where the story was always intending for us to go. And what does he do after he calls and heals those people? He establishes a covenant with them. He establishes a covenant with them. The same way God established his covenant with Israel back in the Old Testament, Jesus is doing the same. And what he is doing as he ascends that mountain in Mosaic fashion, he is saying that you listen to Moses? Well, guess what? Not only am I ascending the mountain, but I'm not getting the law from anyone. The law is coming right from my mouth right from my mouth. I am your Lord. I am your King. I am Yahweh in the flesh. And that's what Matthew is getting at here. 
And that's what needs to get us excited. That's what needs to seep into our bones this morning, that as we read the words of Jesus, we're not just reading a good teacher. We're not just reading a good philosopher, although he was all those things. We are reading the very words of Yahweh God himself. And the instruction he gives us, the instruction that he gives us, is so that we might be a people who not only flourish in our own selves, in our own being, but that we are being used by God to allow for the flourishing of those around us. That we are being used as this conduit by which the grace of God comes from heaven into this world. Because where we go, God goes. That's how it works. The church has been set up as the body of Christ so that we might go out and be the presence of God in this world. Which is why we are required by this text that if we are to reign with Christ, we need to reign like Christ. And that's what we're going to see as we march through the Sermon on the Mount over the next 10 weeks. We're going to see not only these commands that are given to us as followers of Jesus, but we're going to see the very things that Jesus himself lived out as a follower of his God. That's a weird thing to say, but you know what I mean. We're going to see the very thing that he calls us to do, he does it himself. A couple of examples. Jesus calls us to be meek. He calls us to be meek in the Sermon on the Mount. And the very same word that he uses to call us to be meek is the very word used to describe him that we'll see later on as we march through this series. Another thing, it tells us that, that when we are struck on the right cheek, that we should turn the other cheek and allow ourselves to be struck again. That word only appears one other time. It's when Jesus is being beaten before the council. The entire sermon is practically autobiographical. He is the faithful Israelite who adheres to the law completely where it matters most deep within his being and he's calling us to go and do likewise. Because what happens inside of us as the Holy Spirit transforms us and conforms us more and more to the image of his son, the only thing, the only logical consequence of that is that we would then become different. We would change and we would be the type of people that live our lives in such a way where people notice something different about us. That has to be what we are striving towards. This spirit-wrought faithfulness as we endeavor to reach Ocean County with the good news of the kingdom of heaven. It has to be that. And that's what he's getting at. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. And I can't help but, but just be forced to realize that, that this idea of following Jesus it comes with action. It comes with things that we are called to do as his people. I want to flip over to Revelation chapter 20. This is a hotly debated text, but we're not going to get into any of the debates. In Revelation chapter 20, I'm just going to read from, from verse 1 and then pick up in verse 4. It'll be up on the screen. But I'll start from verse 1. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. And a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. 
After that, he must be released for a little while. And then verse 4, what we have on the screen, he says, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those in whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is those is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. If you follow what is happening in chapter 20 there, that first resurrection that rescues us from that second death, that first resurrection is death. It's death. That means that in order for us to reign with Christ, what must happen? We gotta die. We gotta die. Jesus is calling us to die. He's calling us to die. He's calling us to repent of the ways that we have thought were going to be the means by which we would flourish in this world. And he's calling us to die to that and adopt this new way of life. And this new way of life, as you track through the sermon, what you'll notice is that all all these commands, all the things that Jesus is putting forth involves caring for those around you and not just caring for and serving the ones whom are close and easy to love. There are a lot of people in our lives that are easy to love. But no, what Jesus is saying is like, no, 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 the one, that, the one that stole from you, the one that struck you, that's the one I want you to love and care for. And this is where I start to lose my mind as, as a dad, right? And I, always, and I don't even know the answer to this question, so why I'm bringing it up seems silly to me, but the whole idea is if someone punches my kid, what do I tell them to do? I don't know the answer. You're going to have to figure that out on your own. But what Jesus is saying is that as a follower of Jesus, our lives need to be postured toward all those who no one else wants to posture their lives toward. To posture our lives toward all those who no one else wants to posture their lives toward. It's going after the people, the hard people, the ones who who the world has declared to be subhuman. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And and Eric's going to get into this next week, but Matthew chapter 5, so I'm not going to steal too much of your thunder, he talks about these blessings, these blessings that that are cast upon these types of people. And the types of people are those who are poor in spirit, who are mourning, who are meek, and who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful ones, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted ones. He's saying that those are the people who are actually closer to the kingdom of God because they got nothing to lose. They got nothing to lose. I want to quote Creed 2. Rocky Balboa says this. He says, why do you want to fight? I get why they want to fight you. I know what they're fighting for. And he's talking to, to Adonis Creed as he's about to fight Ivan Drago's son, right? If you know anything about Rocky, then you're tracking with me and you're loving this. If you don't, then you're just, you just checked out and that's fine. Why do you want to fight? 
I get why they want to fight you. I know what they're fighting for. What about you? Listen to me. You got everything to lose. He's got nothing to lose. And then he says this, when a fighter ain't got nothing to lose, he's dangerous. He's dangerous. And that's precisely what Jesus is saying of us. We have nothing to lose. And we have everything to gain. You know what we do have to lose? We have the kingdom to lose should we decide to not follow Jesus. That's what we have to lose. So the stakes are massively high. The stakes are massively high. And Jesus is calling us to follow him. He's calling us to follow him. He wants to see this world flourish. He wants to see the people listed in the Beatitudes. He wants to see life breathed into those people. And guess who gets to do it? We do. We do. So as we consider the sermon over the course of the next 10 weeks, as we think through what it means that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what I want us to constantly be coming back to is this thought that to reign with Christ is to reign like Christ. To reign with Christ is to reign like Christ. And in so doing, and in so doing, we will be put at odds with the world because what is set up, the moral vision of the Sermon on the Mount, drives against every single thing the world is putting forth. And that means that the way we posture ourselves with others, with one another, there might need to be some changes that take place. And my prayer as we enter into this is that we would consider this, that we would not just come on Sunday mornings, hear a cool sermon, laugh at a couple jokes, and then be on our way. That can't be what this gathering is for. Because I know that I have not mastered this sermon. I know that. So I venture to say that none of us have mastered this sermon. And that's not because I think I'm better, but I just know how we operate. And especially those of us who have been so influenced by our culture, and we all have, whether it's the external culture or the religious culture within the church, we've all been influenced by a culture. And I think most of us have actually been influenced by that religious culture that does this to the world around us. And God is trying to break that. So my prayer for us as Redeemer Fellowship Tom's River and, as for, and for Redeemer Fellowship Point Pleasant, because they are going to be tracking through the exact same passage over the same, yep, over the next 10 weeks. My prayer is that we would hear these words and that we would allow the Spirit of God to cause us to repent of wherever there is sin in our lives. There is sin in our lives. And this sermon's going to get at it. It's going to get at it, and we have to make the choice that if we're going to reign with Christ, then it's required that we reign like Christ. And reigning like Christ means we repent of this world, and we focus on the kingdom that is at hand, that is in our midst, that is present. Because the kingdom dawning means that it's there. Read the healings that take place. It's in our midst, guys. Jesus is proclaiming good news to the captives. It's in our midst. He's healing all sorts of, of people, and the kingdom is in our midst. Jew and Gentile are coming together. It's in our midst, and Jesus is calling us to live in light of that reality. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace, and I thank you for this message of the kingdom. 
I thank you for what it means, Lord, to be um, a citizen of the kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that as we come to the table this morning, Lord, that we would recognize that as we come to this table, Lord, we are reenacting the very thing that allowed this kingdom to be inaugurated through your death and resurrection, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. I'm going to call the ushers.